Exodus 7, reading from verses 8 to 13. This is God's holy word. Take care how you hear it. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us tonight. May he be pleased to write its eternal truth on all of our hearts. Let's all pray. Well, Lord, this is your word, and we need it. More than food, more than water. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of you, O God. So grant us illumination, grant us an understanding of your word to us. Grant grant us your spirit's ministry. And all for Jesus' sake. Amen. One of the things that we've seen and we will see over and over again in this study of Exodus is this motif of a showdown. And it's not ultimately a showdown of Moses versus Pharaoh or Israel versus Egypt, but really a showdown between the Lord Jehovah, the one true God, and the false gods of Egypt. These gods, who are really not really gods at all, but are nevertheless lies and agents of deception that are conscripted in the service of that great liar and deceiver, Satan. Satan is at work to deceive Egypt, to frustrate Israel, and to do anything he can to detract from God's glory. This is a showdown of principalities and powers brought down to earth and being played out in real time. That's what we're seeing here in these face-offs between Pharaoh and Moses. James Boyce explains that this exodus was another engagement in the invisible war that continually rages between heaven and hell. That's what exodus is. Another engagement in the invisible war that ever and continually rages between heaven and hell. What we studied last summer, Covenant Presbyterian Church, what we studied last summer regarding spiritual warfare back in Ephesians chapter 6, it applies here too. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians 6 verse 12? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, we've already looked over at this passage a bit over the last couple of weeks, but there's a lot going on here, so it's good for us to look at it a bit further. What happens here introduces almost all the main themes that are going to happen over the next five chapters of Exodus. Old Testament narrative loves to do this. It loves to give a preview in miniature of what is going to happen more fully down the road, down along in the story. And so, even in this little prologue, God is foreshadowing his later and ultimate triumph. 
Just as Pharaoh's snakes are swallowed by Aaron's staff, we see that in Exodus 7, verse 12, so later, Pharaoh's army will be swallowed by the Red Sea. That's the language that's invoked in Exodus 15, verse 12, in that great act of judgment. Indeed, it's that same word used in both verses, Exodus 15, 12, and Exodus 7, 12. The verb swallow is used in both those instances to establish that thematic connection. In other words, what we see here in Exodus 7 is a preview of coming attractions. A preview of coming attractions. So three things that I'd like to use to guide our study tonight. Three points. First, true theology. Secondly, counterfeit performance. And then thirdly, tragic consequence. True theology, counterfeit performance, and tragic consequence. First, let's think about true theology Look with me again at verses 8, 9, and 10. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went down to Pharaoh, or went to Pharaoh, and did just as the Lord commanded. Now this statement may seem rather mundane at first blush, but actually it represents a major spiritual victory. God's really done a work in Moses. I wonder if you noticed that. Prior to this, as we've been tracing along the Exodus narrative and we've been walking with Moses, so to speak, in his spiritual progression, prior to this, Moses wanted to throw up every excuse imaginable. Every excuse imaginable when God told him what to do. But here, he simply did what he was told. God's called and appointed prophet had finally reached a point of genuine submission to the will of his master. He does as the Lord commands. Praise God for such growth in grace. And take note, brothers and sisters, that this is your hope. Real and genuine hope, too. The work that God did in Moses, he does in all of his servants. One commentator puts it like this. This should be every Christian's goal, to be so obedient That doing God's will is our immediate and instinctive response. And more than a goal, you can trust God. You can trust God to be about the work of doing it in you. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians 2 verse 13. So whatever, whatever foot dragging, I say this to encourage you, whatever foot dragging, whatever excuses you muster up by the grace of God, by the grace of God, you will learn, we all will, to bend the knee in submission to his will. And more and more, like Moses of old, I, I wonder, I wonder if you won't find that when, when God's grace has had its way with you, Obedience to God's command shall be your default and your knee-jerk instinct. I wonder if you won't find that as God works more and more his grace in your heart, in your mind, in your soul, if that more and more won't be your instinctive and knee-jerk reaction. Oh, may it be haste the day, Lord, when this shall be true of us more and more, to love your will and to love to obey your will. Well, Moses and Aaron, they obey God's commands and we see Again, these great themes in Exodus of God's great provision. We've talked about this before in previous sermons leading up to this point. When God calls his servants into his mission, he equips them. He never sends them barehanded. He never sends them empty-handed. He equips them more than sufficiently 
not just adequately, but more than sufficiently. As he did with Moses, so he does with you, Christian. God never sends you out empty-handed, but he equips you with his very self so that you might do the work to which he has called you. So long, so long Moses had agonized over his personal inadequacies. We've been, we've been with Moses in the narrative, in the text, as he's been thinking of all these reasons why he's not the man for the hour. He's not got the ability. He's not got the faculties or the sense or the wherewithal to make it happen. He's been agonizing over his personal inadequacies, some of which may have been real, some of which, frankly, may have just been imagined and made up and fabricated, his inadequacies for ministry. But God, in his grace, has been showing him that what Moses needed was not rhetorical skill. What Moses needed was not a quick-thinking mind. Not What Moses needed was not a commanding presence or vocabulary. What Moses needed was God. God was what he needed for the mission, and he promised God would be with him. Moses merely needed to trust God's promises and then to obey. And praise the Lord, by the grace of God, he has brought Moses to just such a point where God gives him that instruction and Moses follows through obediently. And so, verse 10, Aaron cast down his staff in front of Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Now, the scholars will wonder, now, was this Moses' staff, the one that was thrown down way back at the burning bush next to his three, or was it Aaron's own staff? Now, certainly God could work a miracle using either instrument. That's not a problem. It's not as if he were limited. Now, probably, probably it was Moses' staff, given the incident and the instruction Moses had been given back at the burning bush. But then there's also the question that gets raised sometimes regarding as to what what kind of snake or what kind of creature it turned into. And, And the reason that that question gets raised is because the text uses two different Hebrew words depending on the occasion. When Moses first threw his staff on the ground, it became a nakash, which means serpent. We see that in Exodus 4, verses 2 and 3. However, when Aaron threw down his staff here in Exodus 7, in our text, in verse 10, it became a tanin, which is a more general Hebrew word for any large reptile. And so, therefore, some scholars argue that Aaron's staff may have become a crocodile, which may sound silly, but given the Egyptian environment, it might have served a polemical purpose. Crocodiles were all over the Nile River. Indeed, some Egyptians worshipped the crocodile god Sobek as the ruler of the Nile. And so if Aaron's staff becomes a crocodile and swallows up the serpent staffs of Pharaoh's magicians, that might be an effective polemical move, an insult made by Jehovah, the true god, against these false gods. It is true that the Hebrew word tanin can refer to crocodiles. That word gets translated that way in other parts of the Old Testament, However, the Bible also uses that word to refer to venomous snakes in places like Deuteronomy 32, verse 33, where it talks about the venom of serpents, tanin. Furthermore, that first Hebrew word for serpent, nakash, that was used back in Exodus 4, that reappears here in chapter 7 at verse 15 when the Lord tells Moses, stand on the bank of the Nile to meet Pharaoh and take in your hand that staff that turned into a serpent, the nakash. So, for whatever it's worth, for my money, Aaron's staff turned into a serpent or a snake because two out of three times the Hebrew word for serpent gets used to describe it. And even that third word is still a word that can mean snake, depending on the context. 
You see, the thing is, Hebrew writers had no problem moving back and forth using various synonyms in their word choice to mean the same thing multiple times. They didn't insist on a kind of clinical consistency in their word choice. But really, the bigger point here is a theological one, not, not merely a question that scholars like to, de- like to debate about which kind of reptile appeared. Was it a snake or was it a crocodile? The real point, the bigger point, is a theological one. As we have mentioned before, the serpent was a symbol of Pharaoh's authority, the, the royal insignia of Pharaoh. There was a cobra carved onto his crown or onto his headdress. And so Pharaoh, he knew these Hebrew men representing their Hebrew God were coming to challenge him when they did what they did. For Aaron to throw down his staff and then to, for it to turn into the royal Egyptian symbol, that was something, that was a direct and insulting challenge against Pharaoh's sovereignty on his own turf, as Jehovah has the audacity to do this right in Pharaoh's own throne room. These men claimed to speak for God, and so to check their credentials, you see what Pharaoh does? He demanded a sign. He demanded a sign, just as the Lord said he would. When Pharaoh says to you, verse 9, prove yourselves by working a miracle, he demands a sign from, from them. Now, it's not wrong, per se, for Pharaoh to make such a request. Strangely enough, Pharaoh seemed to understand the true purpose of divine miracles. As we mentioned a few sermons ago, this is the point of miracles. God does not perform random acts of omnipotence, but instead he displays his miraculous power. Why? In order to confirm the truth of his word. Old Testament prophets, they performed signs and wonders to prove that they were men who spoke legitimately on behalf of God. They were sent from God and by God. Miracles confirm the truth of God's word. That's their point. Miracles confirm the truth of God's word. That's why our Lord Jesus performed so many signs and wonders as he did. His miracles helped prove his claim that he was the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And of course now, we have the Holy Scripture. And we have no more prophets. We have no more apostles. This is why miracles are relatively rare, according to Hebrews 2, verse 4. Because Jesus' words have already been proven true by the greatest miracle of all, the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, But nevertheless, Pharaoh's not wrong, per se, to demand a sign. Validate the claims you're making, Moses and Aaron. Prove to me that you really are coming from this God that you claim to come from. Show me a sign. Show me a wonder. Put your money where your mouth is. Back to Pharaoh. It was deliberate on God's part to have Aaron's staff become a serpent. We won't won't get into all the details, but trust me, trust me when I say, given all the scholarly research that's out there, the more we know about ancient Egypt and snakes, the more we, we realize that God was ultimately waging war against Satan and his demons in this showdown. The Egyptians, I don't know if you know this, but they venerated snakes because they feared them. They they ascribed to these creatures some kind of quasi-divinity. And what do you do when you fear something so greatly? Well, you try to appease it, yes? You try to appease it so that it won't harm you. And in Egypt's case, they worshipped it. 
This is how Satan generally operates, using fear to gain power. That's how Satan loves to operate. And according to what we read earlier from Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, these Gentiles sacrificing to idols are actually participating in demon worship unawares. Listen, there's even archaeological evidence of when Pharaoh, when a Pharaoh, a new king, would first ascend the throne to take on his, uh, to take on his power, his, his royal tenure, he would take the royal crown upon his head and he would pray and declare this, O great one, O magician, O fiery snake, let there be terror of me like the terror of thee. Let me rule, a leader of the living. Let me be powerful, a leader of the spirits. You see, with these words, the new king of Egypt, the new pharaoh, was in fact making an alliance and offering his soul, unbeknownst to him perhaps, but making an alliance in his soul with the devil. So this feud that we see in Pharaoh's throne room was a micro-expression of this cosmic showdown. And for Aaron to throw down his staff as he did in front of Pharaoh and making the symbol of the king's majesty, the royal insignia of Egypt, the snake, crawl in the dust, that was a direct assault on Pharaoh's sovereignty and on Egypt's entire belief system. One commentator made this modern comparison. It would be like... It would be like one of us today strutting into the Oval Office in Washington, D.C. and taking a bald eagle, a live bald eagle, and wringing its neck and throwing its dead carcass on the resolute desk. That's effectively what Aaron and Moses are doing in front of Pharaoh right here. You could not get more insulting. When God confronts other gods, lowercase g, he does not poke around, but he takes aim and he overwhelms it. And he goes right for the divine jugular to slay that false god without mercy. This is what the Lord always does. This is what the Lord always does, most supremely, of course, in Jesus Christ. And in the most unlikely of ways, he came down, all the way down to this earth, and he took on flesh, as it says, that through death, Scripture says, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, Hebrews 2.14 that is, the devil. He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and he might deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And we, brothers and sisters, we who bear that message of life, again, in the most unlikely of ways, like Moses of old, bearing the message of God according to 2 Corinthians 10, verse 1, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they do have the divine power to destroy strongholds. Put simply and succinctly, it's this. God delights to destroy the strongholds of Satan for the liberation of his people. And that's what we see here in Exodus 7. God is delighting to liberate Israel from their bondage and captivity. God delights to liberate his people, and he loves to, to get a two-for-one, if we can put that reverently. God delights to destroy the strongholds of Satan for the liberation of his people. So that's the first thing that we see here. Standing behind this showdown, standing behind this showdown is true theology. True theology. But secondly, and more briefly, at this showdown we also have a counterfeit performance. A counterfeit performance. The gauntlet has been thrown down. 
Pharaoh's authority, his sovereignty, the power of his gods have been challenged as these Hebrew prophets mock the serpentine symbol of Egyptian royal power. And Pharaoh knows he's been challenged. He knows he's been insulted. So, verse 11. Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. Now, as you might imagine, there's all kinds, all sorts of speculation among the scholars as to what these magicians actually did. Was it merely an illusion, a sleight-of-hand trick, the way a modern magician might pull a rabbit out of a hat or seemingly make a tiger disappear? Perhaps, perhaps it was sleight-of-hand. Were these men just very gifted snake charmers? That's not out of the question, actually. Such street performances have long been part of Egyptian culture and have long fascinated tourists. We actually have reports from Western tourists, even from not too many distant decades ago, saying this is still done in Cairo today as a trick of magic. The Egyptian cobra can be paralyzed by putting pressure on a nerve on its neck, and the snake will fully elongate and stiffen itself, and the man will hold the creature by the head, and at a distance it can be readily mistaken for a cane. And when the magician throws it on the ground, the jolt causes it to recover, and it crawls away, an active snake again. Maybe something like that took place. Again, perhaps. But given that the powers behind this showdown are ultimately God and Satan, it is not an implausible stretch to believe that something supernatural really did occur, as these magicians tapped into the powers of the occult, ultimately demonic powers of darkness. When the Bible speaks of secret arts, as the language is used here in our translation, it refers specifically to demonic spells and incantations. You see, the prohibitions and the laws against sorcery and magic and incantations that we find all over the Old Testament, it's not because these things were fake and just in bad taste and insulting to God. They are, they are insulting to God's honor, But it's not because these things are fake. It's because they're all too real. Think of the incident with Saul and the witch of Endor, 1 Samuel chapter 28. The point there is God's people dare not toy and dare not dabble with things like sorcery and necromancy because they are all too real. And to flirt with these things is to dabble with the realm of the demonic. Humans, made in God's image, we are made to worship. We were all made to worship. And the truth is, if we will not worship the one true God, we will worship something. Satan will happily take any false worship. Satan will happily take any false worship. Worship Zeus. Worship nature. Worship your bank account for all I care. I don't care. Just don't give it to the Lord, and I count it for as a win. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, these Egyptian magicians tapping into what they thought were the spiritual powers of their mythological gods were really conjuring and tapping into the powers of demons. Our world is rife with the supernatural. And if we're not careful, we can fall into a kind of over-realized naturalism or over-realized rationalism. One of the high school students just a few weeks ago asked me, are demons real and are they still active? And I said, absolutely yes. Absolutely, yes. 
According to Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, spiritual warfare is real. Now, people can get excessive in their fixation on that. Uh, I think our, our charismatic and our Pentecostal brethren can fall into that ditch. But nevertheless, the spiritual realm is real. But do notice this. At the same time, notice that the best that these Egyptians could do was just to imitate what God did. Satan, unlike God, cannot create. That's why, that's why for my money, for whatever it's worth, I tend to agree with the Puritan William Perkins, and I believe, for example, that it wasn't the real Samuel conjured up by the witch at Endor, but rather a demon in counterfeit appearance as Samuel. And it wasn't really a snake created by the Egyptian sorcerers, but a counterfeit made by sorcery and trickery. It had the appearance, and it was empowered by demonic power, because only God, only God can truly create. Satan is not God's equal. He can only imitate. The Bible says the work of Satan is displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, counterfeit signs, and counterfeit wonders. That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. And when we think about that, friends, it's no wonder that all the world religions bear some similarity. We can agree to a point, but we must acknowledge why that's the case. All religions bear some similarity. There's prayers and there's rituals and there's teachings and there's various acts of piety and so forth. But why do these world religions look similar to some degree in various iterations? It's because the agent ultimately standing behind these various world religions is the same great con man, Satan. And he's a knockoff artist. And he's got thousands of years of experience in doing it, doing anything he can to disguise and deceive people away from worshiping the one true and living God. So that's the second thing that we see here. First, true theology. Secondly, we see a counterfeit, a counterfeit performance. But finally... And very briefly, at this showdown is a tragic consequence. A tragic consequence. Look at verse 12. At the end of the verse. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Verse 13. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. A few quick gulps, and Aaron's serpent staff had swallowed the serpent staff of the magicians. Now, the Apostle Paul, later on in 2 Timothy 3.8, he mentions two names of Pharaoh's sorcerers for us, Janus and Jambres. And since those are the only two names mentioned by Paul, we're probably on safest ground to assume that there were just two sorcerers. I suppose that it is possible that these two were the lead sorcerers, representative of a cadre of other magicians, but regardless of how many you think were there or not, the point was... The instrument of the Hebrews' God had overwhelmed the servants of the God of Egypt and absolutely humiliated Pharaoh. According to religious, excuse me, according to Egyptian religious beliefs in Pharaoh's day, one commentator notes this. In Egyptian cosmology and theology, swallowing something was the way to acquire all its powers. By gobbling up their magic wands, Aaron's staff was not simply destroying their power and authority, but was claiming that all their power and authority belonged to God. The obvious implication was that the God of Israel 
was also the true Lord of Egypt. Close quote. One wonders if the Egyptian magicians realized really what was happening. The magicians, by the way, were the first Egyptians to confess God's power. We'll see that in a few weeks when we look at Exodus chapter 8 at verse 19. They're the first ones to confess God's power. Aaron's deed was no mere magic trick, but a miracle. There's also a good reminder and a comfort to us here, brothers and sisters. Although demonic forces are real, and although Satan's powers are real, they are not absolute. They are not absolute. Satan, he, he seems to imitate God. He seems to, to counterfeit God, to, to mock and to mimic God wherever he can. But he is not the Lord's equal. He is not Yahweh's equal. And this will become all the more evident as the plagues roll on. And I don't know about you, but when I heard that language of what happens here between the staffs of Aaron and Moses and the, and the, staffs, the staff of Aaron and the staffs of the Hebrew sorcerers. I don't know about you, but when I hear that language of the theological belief that swallowing something is a means to overwhelm something and acquire its powers and acquire its domain, my mind immediately goes to the language of 1 Corinthians 15. You remember it? Death is swallowed up in victory. Death is swallowed up in victory in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is no victim of death, but he is its conqueror and its Lord with his foot planted firmly on its neck. And he must reign until all his enemies have been put under his feet. There's a reason the Lord Jesus is described in the book of Revelation as holding the keys of death and hell. It's not because he's their victim. It's because he's their master. He holds the keys. That is, he's got control of the door. That's who the key master is. When you hold the keys, you've got control of the door. He opens it. He rules the manor. He decides who gets in and who gets out. If you've got the keys to the building, you've got domain over it. And that's exactly what the Lord Jesus has as he swallowed up death in his glorious resurrection victory. But nevertheless, what we see here playing out at the end... We're here in the midst of Exodus chapter 7. Is a, it's a tragic scene, of course, because of verse 13. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, as God had said it would be way back in verses 3 and 4. And as we read through the plagues, we'll see sometimes it is God who hardens Pharaoh's heart, and sometimes it is Pharaoh himself who hardens his own heart. It's tragic because what Pharaoh... What Pharaoh should have done, shouldn't he, is to get down from his throne and to begin to worship the one true God. As one man said, he had heard God's word, he had seen God's sign, and the only proper response was to fall down at God's feet. It's tragic because few men have ever seen the power of God the way Pharaoh did up close and personal. Few men have ever seen God's power the way Pharaoh did And there's a warning here, isn't there, to anyone who has witnessed God's power but refuses to receive God's grace. The real issue, ultimately, it's not the evidence, but what a person does with it. The evidence is sufficient, yes? God's glory is declared in the heavens. It's proclaimed in all creation. His, His saving grace is published for all to find in his word. The good news of salvation is proclaimed the world over through Christ's people as they spread abroad across every continent. 
The unbeliever's real problem, just like Pharaoh's real problem, it's not intellectual. It's spiritual. What is needed is a change of heart. Pharaoh's heart was hard. And our hearts are dead in sin apart from Christ. So what else can we do then? What else can we do but to cry out to the Lord of life, the one who has swallowed up death in his resurrection victory, and plead with him, let us plead with him to take away hearts of stone and grant hearts of flesh and grant saving faith. And to any, to any who hear these words, if you're here in the room tonight, if you're listening to a recording of this later on sometime down the road, to any who hear these words, and if you feel drawn to this Savior, if you feel inclined toward this Savior, I would urge you, don't hesitate. Don't waffle. Don't oscillate. Today, friends, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, Hebrews 3. Turn and believe. Lay hold of Christ, in whose death you have died to sin, and in whose life you may now live unto righteousness and for eternity. Don't delay even for a moment longer, but turn and lay hold of Christ by faith. Pharaoh's heart was hard. But God's saving grace is published abroad, declared the world over, and freely offered and available to all who would turn and believe. May we heed these lessons, heed these warnings, and praise God for the grace displayed in it. Praise God for his word to us tonight. Would you pray with me, please? Oh, Lord, we do bless you for your word. It is precious to us. We ask that you would seal it to our hearts. We ask that you would bless it to us. And truly, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen.